Welcome to building a hundred million pound business in public. Four years ago, I was having lunch with my friend Logan when we half joked about racing to a hundred million. And it's always stayed in my head. What does it take to build a hundred million pound business? On this podcast, I ask my network and speak to VCs, founders, DNI specialists, marketeers, and more to share their top tips. Some have made it, some are on the way, and all have a story to tell. My guest today has been on a successful 100 million journey uh, at Rightly, but just focused on product. Now he's launched a new business, deckbuilder.io, where he's looking at the whole business. I know this is an interesting potential step for a lot of CTOs and product specialists, so I'm delighted to welcome Kenneth today. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Well, perhaps we'll start with just a bit of an intro to what Deck Builder is. Certainly. Deck Builder really happened organically. Uh, in a company I was working at, I noticed a need for a way to more quickly build up a pitch deck. I was in a customer-facing role and I had a really repetitive task every time I had a customer meeting, which was easily 5, 10, 15 times a week to get the right slides together, uh, including customer stories, the right products and services and topics to include. And I thought, what if there was a better way to do this? Sure enough, all these platforms like Google Slides have APIs today you can easily build on top of to uh, make this more streamlined and automated. So you get a nice user interface where you pick what you want to include, what you don't want to include, inject company logos, uh, titles, and it spits out your deck in about 15 seconds. And so now you're ready for your customer meeting, you're not overwhelming them with slides, and you're ready to go. And after I left that company, having hacked together kind of an internal tool, uh, I realized, wow, I, I still need this, even though I don't work at that company, and had a couple of colleagues who had also left and felt the same. And so we met up in April of this year, uh, April of last year, time flies, <laughs> and decided to, to take a swing at making this a, a standalone product and see if we get it off the ground. And so that's Deck Builder. It's, it's really about giving back time to sales teams, anyone customer facing, mostly in, in B2B companies, uh, to help them deliver the best pitch they can and save time in the process. I, I really love the, sort of this new business created from a problem you've solved in your old business. Brandon, uh, for, who sold Talent Rover, now launched Place Technology, previous guest. He did, his, his Place Technology is all about solving a problem that he had to deal with at Talent Rover. So... How big a problem for you was this? I mean, clearly it was something you spent some time on. Yeah, I, I tried to quantify it a little bit, uh, of course, because you're internal trying to show that the thing you just spend a bunch of time building in addition to your regular job is actually adding value to the company. And it, it's not a stretch to think it takes you half an hour to go digging through all your various repositories of slides and folders, copying and pasting them into the right place to get you started. And then you just multiply that by the number of meetings that you have. And even, even at this company, we launched Deck Builder for my team, Sales Engineering, at first, and then we're able to get uh, four other teams at the company who were interested in using it as well, from onboarding and training to the customer success team, right into the product team who are doing architecture presentations and injecting logos into decks. So uh, we're able to kind of show that, yeah, this, this is a problem that isn't, isn't just unique to myself or, or my immediate team of 20 or so sales engineers, but mm. seems to be more broad for everyone who's talking to customers regularly. So I actually got some really good sort of early user engagement, even before it was like a, a separate company. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a jump start to doing a startup, right? You've already validated that this is a real idea. This is a real pain. And um, that's a huge plus. So, so many of these startup stories you hear, they start with an idea. And then you've got to figure out, well, how do I test if this is actually real? And that's what gave us some confidence in the early stages that we should spend a bit of time building this out 
because we've we've seen some good evidence firsthand, some good signals firsthand that this is a, a real challenge. Mm. And how have you found personally? So before we kind of very product speci- specialized, and this is kind of the whole business. How how's that been? Yeah, it's, it's easy when you're in product uh, to put your nose down, right, and think you're you're building the product, and the product is the company, and that, that's all there is to it. And if you can build a good product, you most the work of course um similar similar in any kind of technical role i guess and um now of course we're learning how much more goes into it um how much more scope there is to to getting something off the ground and i think you know a a big part of that has been trying to to build connections and and build a network as well Mm -hmm. which can be challenging for for people from more product or tech backgrounds so yeah and, and that's really a good way to kind of maybe accelerate what you're doing. If you can piggyback on someone else's community, someone else's user base, um, then then you can get a lot of traction without having to resort to paid ads or, or much more manual and labor-intensive processes. So so yeah, I'd say in short, there's, there's quite a large scope of tasks required outside of just putting together some code and a UI and a landing page. Do you feel that's led you to creating a better product, having to get out there and, and do these things? Or have you found it distracting and kind of taking you away from... That, that clear focus you had before? I'd say there are definitely some efficiencies. So uh, at a startup I was involved in before with Rightly, we had a really strong founding team, uh, a CEO and COO, both who had strong experience in, in data and operations. We had a, a strong tech lead, full stack engineer. We had a, a lawyer and a couple of us working on product and UX. And we were actually slower at building, I think, because we would have these really in-depth two-hour meetings multiple times a week where we'd hash out so much stuff and everyone had an opinion. It was all really valuable and, and um, it led to a strong product, but everything was, was through this broader committee. And so mm. going back to a smaller team where each of us are more multidisciplinary, there are some benefits. I'm sure we have some blind spots, but we've been able to build pretty quickly, make decisions pretty quickly, and hopefully stay pretty agile. And, and part of that is, yeah, having the same person who's, who's you know, writing some code or building a landing page as the person who's actually talking to the customers rather than having a bit of a separation of duties there. Mm. So this kind of, I suppose what resonates with me is sort of the Eric Ries Lean startup and that people's opinions are kind of worthless. It's only when your customers start paying you money for something or start adopting something, mm. that shows the, the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we've all heard the word agile a million times, had it drilled into our heads. And often we, we think about Agile as this idea of creating feedback loops, get get an understanding of what a customer wants, try and build it, see if it works, repeat, repeat, repeat as tight and as fast as you can. But <laughs> you need some customers to do that. Um, and so it can be getting getting off the ground, getting that first 5, 10, 15 that can be a, can be a challenge um, to the point where you can actually start to make those iterations to, to run experiments, uh, to, mm. to test out prototypes. Otherwise, it's just, just your own opinions, you're right. Well, that's what I mean. That's... I- on the podcast so far, I've had lots of people kind of at the end of the 100 million journey or kind of in the middle middle to late stages. And that's what I really want to chat to you is kind of you've got this experience of having gone through that journey in another business, but now you're starting back from scratch again. How, how would you go about getting your first 10 customers? Yeah. And, and here's an, another example where it should be easier for us given that we're building for, for ourselves. So we're fortunate to have some kind of a network, which is great. The, the challenge there is you get people who want to support you, want to be friendly. 
And so everyone we show Deck Builder to loves it. And they say, this is great. I can see how I'd use it. And then you go and you check the session recordings, you check your analytics, and they're not using it. And that's the hard part is, is drilling deeper into the why. Uh, I heard a great quote. I wish I could remember the, the source of it. Um, they talked about, maybe it was on your podcast, they talked about uh, asking questions even your mother would have to give you an honest answer to. So, and I'm, I'm still working at this, still trying to get better at this, but not, do you like this? Would you use it? But how would you use this? When would you use it? Or even even forcing them to kind of give you, uh, in sales, we call this like a negative reversal, I think. It's from Sandler's sales methodology, saying something like, it sounds like this isn't for you. It sounds like this won't work for your use cases. And make them contradict you to see if they can. Mm. They can tell you why that actually this is good. Um, so, you know, that's something we're learning along the way, how to, how to ask those first handful of customers uh, or potential customers, potential users, uh, the real questions to figure out if this is going to stick or not. So I suppose what I'm hearing there is you kind of, it's not only asking, not, not only knowing what questions to ask, but it's also about knowing what early customers to go after, because you might, some customers you might pick up might not, maybe more vanity customers rather than true customers. Yeah. And um, an interesting example of that that we never considered, we were going after ourselves, B2B sales teams. That was our target market. We thought that was pretty clear. Uh, I replied to a random tweet one day uh, from someone in kind of the, the building and public community, uh, as I mentioned, Deck Builder. And we had a huge spike in traffic from, uh, from his following, which was in freelancing. Never occurred to me before that freelancers also have to pitch themselves on a regular basis and also have a slide deck and also need to adjust it. And so that was kind of a moment for us to take a look like, hey, is there something to this community? Um, how, how big is it? Do they have money? Do they spend money? Do they have the same kind of feature and product needs? Um, because we hadn't considered it before. And then we had to decide, you know, do, do you want to change your value messaging, your landing page to try to be more broad at the risk of taking your initial users who you thought was your core and maybe the site doesn't feel quite as relevant for them anymore. And that's definitely mm. a trade-off that we're still, we're still figuring out. I mean, that comes up again and again on the podcast, this idea of how, how, what do you focus on? What, what is, so when, you, when, you, when you're seeing these different use cases and these different customers, what are the sort of the core elements you come back to to, to make those decisions? Yeah, it's, it's a tough market to size, for example. Um, we've done some research, you know, and, and everything's, everything's so chicken and the egg. Um, so, for, for example, we decide, oh, we want to target uh, B2B sales companies. But the large ones have big, huge, fancy platforms in place and require huge, extensive approval processes to get anything officially approved for use. Uh, so maybe we want to target companies below 500 employees. But we also on the ones above you know, 100 who will actually get out their credit cards and buy some software and such. Uh, and then you got to f- go figure out what percent of those use the technology you rely on. In our case, Google Drive's APIs and Google Slides APIs. Um, and then, yeah, and so that's kind of figuring out how many of those have Google Workspace accounts. And so you can start to get a feel for things um, and then merge that with some of your quantitative analysis. Like, you know, okay, I've talked to 20 people in the last month and of those 12 have Google accounts but only eight of them actually use slides for their pitches regularly. And it's all very gray and very fluffy, but uh, I don't know if there's a better way for the moment. That's kind of what we're relying on. Mm. Well, what would be your, some, for what you've seen so far in the sort of both at Rightly and now doing your own business, what, what, what's your sort of hundred million tip of you've seen that leads to success? 
Yeah, I saw a great quote that uh, for startups, you've just got to throw everything at your your biggest problem right now. Anything mm. else is just a waste of time. And you know, if you're a funded startup, it's killing it's killing your burn rate and everything. Um, and for for a lot of startups, and certainly for us, it's like find that user value. Forget about everything else. So, uh, as an example of this, with my co-founders, we started thinking about pricing. Like, how are we going to price this thing? If we're going to do bootstrap micro SaaS approach, maybe it's a hundred a month per team. Um, maybe it's more what features go on what plans. We were reading white papers on, you know, graphing and, and surveying people to find intersections of plots to figure out how much this should be worth and what the value is. And then we talked to one of our kind of a, informal mentors or advisors, and he just said, like, forget about that. Like, you've just got to find and prove as much value as early as you can possible. Get this tool in their hands. See how they use it. Anything else is an assumption, right? We think it's valuable because it saves them time in X, Y, and Z ways. Uh, but really, it might be valuable for some other reason, if at all. And and that was a really good reset um, that actually got us to launch sooner because we, we don't have to implement uh, Stripe right now and get billing and, and paid plans in place. We need to get this in the hands of people ASAP and learn what the value is and build everything off that. So that's really kind of been our focus. And I, I think I could compare that to what I've seen in the past at Rightly, where we also spent a lot of time building a prototype that was probably not the best use of our time. Uh, we did it a bit too early. And, and we were doing user testing. We were using Google Forms to uh, simulate what an app might look like and see what information people were comfortable sharing and not at various stages of an onboarding process and so on. But yeah, we, we spent a lot of time and, and money trying to build this prototype when really rightly strength was about, uh, or at least its early success was about the network and the connections it was able to build up. And we could have better prioritized, I guess, if we kept asking ourselves that question, like what's the actual value we're adding here? If you, if you were to go back to last year and start again, <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the one thing that you would have done differently? Um, hmm, that, that's a good one. I feel like we're, we're early enough. We haven't made too many mistakes yet <laughs> doing this in our, in our free time. You know, you spend a little bit less on it. So all I've been doing it for almost a year, it's, it's not a year full time. Um, another piece of advice we got from, from one of our mentors was that more startups uh, die by suicide than homicide. And his point was that you need to get all the <laughs> founders very, very closely aligned on um, what are you trying to do? And, and, what is the threshold where we want to quit our jobs and work on this full time? Uh, what is the threshold where you um, you want to take on funding or something like that? And that's something that we tend to assume we all kind of agree on. Seems obvious to each of us individually, but we all probably have very different goals and different different uh, you know, ways we'd make that decision. And so, so that was an example. I think we could have been a bit more intentional. It hasn't caused issues yet, but I think that was some some great advice to to sit down as a team and talk about you know, how are we going to tackle this rather than, as we're all prone to do, just get excited about the product via domain and, and start coding or something. It's, I mean, it's really interesting you say that. I was speaking to someone the other day who said that they just finished fundraising. And it was at this point that different salary expectations sort of came out to play. And I think you can go into that. Almost it can be a topic people will avoid, but some of those kind of housekeeping topics are not quite as exciting as the kind of the, oh, what are we going to build? But as you say, probably are the things which which hamstring you if you're on, if you're on different pages. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And no, nobody wants uh, nobody wants that kind of drama. Usually, you start a startup with friends of yours, right? And it's a shame when you see uh, time after time people who are not talking anymore and can't get along, and you know, ruins the friendship, ruins the company, and such. So maybe a conversation early on can can help prevent that. I don't know. Hmm. Well, well, the other thing that's quite interesting, I think, is this this idea that you're like you're not doing it full time is bootstrapped is do you think that's something that people are becoming more and more open to as you're talking to advisors and potential investors for the future yeah there's there's a really cool community of people who are going all in on this idea of micro SaaS as well so how quickly can i get to profitability can i automate things like onboarding and customer support and payments and renewals and can i just turn this into something that generates a bit of revenue on the side takes a few hours a week and um, maybe I can go work on another project or, or build a por- portfolio of such brands. Um, so I think that's a really neat idea, really, really attractive if, if you can pull it off. We're really listening to the market in that regard. That's kind of our, our default approach. And, you know, we, we all have careers we enjoy. We have family commitments and such um, that come first. And we're going we're gonna to let the market, let our users tell us that that approach is not going to work. And that, no, you, you do need a sales team because you're selling to businesses and they, they're going to ask annoying questions about security reviews and they're going to expect someone to hold their hand through the process. And if, if that's what it comes down to, that's what it comes down to. And maybe we decide we need to do fundraising. But for the time being, we're going to see if we can kind of progress this as a side project until we run into a roadblock that seems like uh, is, is insurmountable with the status quo. So actually, so where you think this could get to could be anywhere from kind of like micro SaaS to potentially the gateway to a hundred million business. Yeah, I mean, I've been working in in B two B software for about ten years. Uh, I've seen companies will spend a lot of money on software uh, if you can prove ROI. Uh, you, you can basically ask for for any number you want. And, and Deck Builder today is is a very specific tool. It solves a very specific challenge. It does a great job of it. Uh, there's nothing better for solving that challenge, but it, it is a very specific, very narrow challenge. So at, at present, I think it does fit this model well. But as we learn about our users, as we get more users, we might uncover new challenges that are bigger or complementary or adjacent challenges. And if we can start to build those into Deck Builder or, or uh, turn Deck Builder into some kind of multi-product company, then I don't see a reason that it can't keep growing like that as long as we keep uh, being the best at solving those challenges. And and for you building a network, let's say, what, what would be your top tips for people to build a network? Yeah, I think it's it's going back to if there's a community or a user group you can attach yourself to. Uh, so I've done a lot of exploring. I joined way too many Slack communities that uh, you know, I first discovered a couple of years back, but I was amazed to realize there are these huge communities on the internet that you don't really come across because it's not a it's not a web page, it's not a forum, it's all inside Slack. And so for us, it's the pre-sales collective, it's the sales enablement collective, it's uh, product-led growth, all of these groups who are potential users. And if you go in there with a, you know, as a genuine person, not just trying to push your product and every message and spam people, then you can get great engagement and you can get some, some, you can learn a lot and meet some potential users there. Um, so it's trying to find these communities. It's, it's the partnerships approach. So there's a, a great sales training methodology called demo to win. And we had a brief chat with them as well um, because part of what their guidance is, is how to structure a pitch deck. And we thought, Hey, we could have a, a deck builder um, 
that that essentially helps people build that pitch deck and then you are potentially getting access to their community of users as well and it's only mutually beneficial um, even if just a completely informal relationship and so those seem to be really the the accelerants uh, how can we do this faster than just a lot of manual reach out and a lot of manual emails or linkedin messages is it that when i was a long time ago doing a going going bike which was like sort of a a non-stolen second-hand bike marketplace sounds very random. Uh, we partner with Team Sky, um, and likewise, suddenly you go from being sort of a six-month-old startup, which no one's heard of, to suddenly put in front of like hundreds of thousands of mad keen cyclists who then proceed to crash your site <laughs> because your site's not built for that much traffic. It's kind of like <laughs> it's a, it's a, I, I'm a hundred. I'm a big believer in in partnerships, X deals, like finding out how you can how you can mutually win yeah. is a massive driver i'm guessing that experience um it also quickly reveals what expertise you don't have uh so for us a deck builder our founding team is is three people with similar backgrounds and, and similar experience we've done all right so far given that we have a bit of tech experience a bit of product a bit of sales um you think those are the kind of the core tenants for for getting a startup off the ground perhaps um, but we don't know much about marketing, for example. And and this is, you know, we're, we're relatively new to the startup world. We don't have a ton of experience there. So for us to, we're, we're constantly asking those questions. Uh, what are we lacking? Where can we get it? Is it an interview? Is it an employee? Is it another co-founder? Um, what do we need to do? Let's not have any blind spots and let's not, uh, you know, let our own egos get in the way of, of growing this. Hmm. Well, the, the final thing I'd, I'd ask for is having come back to to the start point and you, you've been working for big companies, you've been scaled ones, what's the thing that's kind of really sort of resonated for you as sort of like a good discipline that maybe you'd forgotten in a, in a bigger business that suddenly when you're kind of, it's a bit more sort of life and death in a startup, what, what, what's kind of, what, what, what are we almost like a habit that you've relearned or sort of a, a realization that's hit you? Hmm. Um, yeah, maybe it's cliche, but there's, there's definitely a, a case of, you know, in big companies, people saying it's not my job. Um, and, you know, I, I worked in Oracle that was a hundred thousand employees, uh, 120 maybe now. And, you know, everyone's role is, is so specific, uh, in terms of the customers you cover, the part of the sales process, um, and how you handle a meeting, like right down to the details, right. Whose job is what in the meeting. And I, I was attracted to that role at first, moving from a 15-person company to Oracle, uh, because I wanted to specialize. I wanted to learn and have time to being so generalized before. That was, that was a bit of a challenge. Um, and then, yeah, you go back to a startup where you do have to be very general again, and you have to do everything again. And I think that that's, that's good. You, you, you learn a lot, of course. You also, like I said, have to acknowledge your gaps. And it can be tempting to, to try and fill those gaps. Um, one example is, you know, I'm, I'm not a software engineer by any stretch of the imagination. And I still love rolling on my hands and getting to the code. And there'll be a feature that I, I want to build. And so I'll, I'll spend five hours working on it. And I finally get it working. Don't look at the code. It's a mess, but it works. And I know, if I'm honest with myself, that one of my co-founders could have built that in 30 minutes probably. And so I've got to kind of admit that, okay, that was fun. If that's my hobby, then great. But uh, if I go and spend five hours 
setting up our CRM or working on our, our nurturing emails for the first two weeks of a user or something like that. Um, that's more valuable. And there, my time is equivalent to my other co-founders in terms of, you know, efficiency. So, so that's another lesson, of course, you got to keep yourself honest on. Thanks for listening today. And hopefully you've taken away one thing to think about or try. Let me know in the comments if there's something you'd like us to explore in future episodes or just reach out on LinkedIn or podcast at district4.io. Let's keep learning and building great companies together.